Hello and welcome to 30 Minutes On, a podcast from American Magazine. I'm your host, American Magazine staff writer Andrew Erickson. Today, in our summer 2020 episode, we're spending 30 minutes on social justice education. The events of the last couple months, including nationwide protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, have served for many as a late but important wake-up call and an education on the reality of centuries of systemic racism and inequality in our country. This fall, the Social Justice School, a new public charter middle school in Northeast D.C., opens to its first cohort of 5th and 6th grade students. Myron Long and his colleagues will begin teaching the next generation of changemakers, providing young people the tools to help them analyze and dismantle those systems, and ultimately work to build better ones. Long is the school's founder and executive director, a native Washingtonian, and a 2005 graduate of AU's Master in Philosophy program. In late June, we talked about his background as an educator, the process of formulating a vision for a school and starting it from scratch, and the importance of social justice education right now. Here's our interview. We hope you enjoy. All right. Yeah. Myron, thank you so much for joining us and being our guest on the 30 Minutes On podcast. Uh, I wanted to start by by asking you about the origins of the school. Uh, I've seen in a couple articles you've talked about how your daughter inspired you to dig into this idea for the school. How did you go about developing the idea for the social justice school? Is there a model or playbook you worked off of and, and what did you initially have in mind? Yeah, thank you. Great. Thank you. Great question. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here to talk about the social justice school. So, you know, I'm a native Washingtonian and I am really proud of uh, my city. And, you know, social justice school, like you mentioned, was really created as an opportunity for uh, my daughter because in the neighborhood in which we live in, um, in the Brentwood neighborhood, Unfortunately, not all of the schools are preparing students for college and career, but more importantly, we understand that there's also like a civic engagement gap in our country. And so I wanted to make sure that my daughter had an opportunity to be a part of a community where that was the actual focus around civic engagement. And so the social justice school really started as a question, right? And so when I was a middle school principal for the last seven years, I always wondered, would real-world learning increased student engagement? And that particular question led me to a series of pilots that eventually became the Social Justice School. So at a Social Justice School, we see ourselves as a community of designers. And so our first pilot was just an advisory of five young men and myself. Um, and we read this fantastic book called All American Boy by Jason Reynolds, a local author. And to see the amount of engagement that increased because students saw a text where folks look like them, sound like them, and also were engaging with issues that mattered to them. It was about policing and coming of age story uh, between two, two young gentlemen. And so I thought like we were kind of onto something then. Yeah. Um, and then at the school I was working at, we had started to do some work around race and equity with adults, um, but it was, we hadn't yet crossed that bridge to do the work with race and equity with our children. And so, again, another question is like, you know, can we really prepare young people to become racially literate and see their racialized stories as a sense of power um, and identity? Since we know that young people, especially during the adolescent time, are beginning to build identities um, and construct them. And in some instances, internalize identities that can be harmful. And so second pilot was a 
16 week seminar with about 10 eighth graders that I led and we did a race and equity seminar that they created a podcast actually called the reality of intersectionality um, on race, gender, um, and immigration. It was a four part series um, all self-produced. And so I think we were like, okay, we're down. we, We have these two components. We have this identity work, we have this real world work and we have this social justice work. And we know that we want to deal with middle school population. I'm, I'm a middle school person through and through. That's all yeah. my background. People might say I'm crazy, but that's the work that I enjoy. <laughs> and so then we said, okay, you know, if students have this opportunity to create a product that will be displayed publicly and engage in field work, uh, where they can actually bring connections to the classroom and to the outside world, will that actually increase student achievement Um, and engagement even more. And so that led to our largest pilot, which was the Freedom Academy. And so the Freedom Academy was a four-week, one-classroom version of the Social Justice School, where we studied mass incarceration in the school-to-prison pipeline through literacy and data. So we read excerpts from the New Jim Crow and looked at a bunch of statistics from uh, discipline statistics uh, from different schools. And we took our students to the Legacy Museum in Alabama um, as an opportunity for them to kind of make the, the connection between uh, mass incarceration and slavery as a, and mass incarceration as evolution of slavery. Yeah. And so that was actually the part where it all kind of came together. Um, and those three pilots is what birthed the social justice school. And what did you learn about how, you know, when you're presenting text, when you're presenting data like that, how the kids interacted with the text, with the data, and also with each other, how those discussions happened, and what, what questions did that sort of answer for you as, as you got to see those? Well, one, it answered this question um, that young people are ready to have these conversations. They're actually having them already with their peers. And I think they're looking from guidance um, from adults to create that safe and inclusive space. And two, it allowed young people to begin to really understand this concept of intersectionality that we think is like a pretty theoretical concept, but it's actually a concept that I think young people can really um, understand because they live it every single day. But I think most importantly, it also taught me that, you know, doing this kind of work is really hard um, with children because essentially there's this notion that the world is unfair um, and I'm being thrown into it, kind of like an existential uh, crisis, if you will. And so I remember one day um, our kids were like, you know, and the pilot, they were like, can we just play dodgeball? And I was like, of course you could play dodgeball. And then I had to reflect on it. And I think what they were saying is that like, you know, even though this work is really important and sometimes serious, we can't lose this idea of like joy and freedom dreaming. And that essentially is the heart of the work. And so we started to do some work around deconstructing systems of oppression, but actually spend the majority of our time um, having students dream and construct a new world because that's the work that actually inspired them and really gave them hope. Yeah. What what led you to want to become an educator? What what was your kind of development in that field? And how did you go about learning how to empower kids and, and provide them information? Yep. So uh, again, native Washingtonian, grew up in the Brightwood neighborhood. Yeah. And um, I was in the high, I, so this is kind of like a tale of, of two young men. So me, I'm the first young man and I, you know, for lack of better words, excelled in school um, in the traditional ways in which school excels. But I had some really good friends. I'm another young man by the name of Walter and he was a really stand up guy, a great artist, um, and just a really good young brother. However, school wasn't necessarily designed in a way to allow him to show his mastery um, in different ways. And so 
when that happens in schools, um, often, especially when you place me growing up in the DC in the 90s in the heart of mass incarceration, young people get near, um, get socialized into um, the streets. And so I remember skipping school um, one day to go to Walter's funeral, unfortunately, when I was 14. And I didn't have the words um, and like knowledge to really grasp what was happening. But what I now understand is that there was a system of white supremacy at play in my school um, that created low expectations for Walter and some of my other friends. And, it, you know, it looked like folks talking to me about college all the time, but not many of my peers. Um, and so that when I, as I got older, I was committed to ensuring that that wouldn't happen to young people and whatever I created an educational space would be a space where young folk feel connected to the world and to the, to their teachers and also um, had high expectations um, rooted in love and justice and liberation. And so I started out as a teacher uh, teaching for several years um, where I met my wife at a KIPP school here in Anacostia. Um, and then I transitioned to becoming a principal um, at E.L. Hazelwood Charter School for seven years. Um, and now I'm the founder of the Social Justice School. Um, I've seen a lot on the liberatory design system. Can you walk me and, and others through what, what that is and how that can engage students in conversations about power imbalance, oppression, and, and patterns of inequity? So liberatory design thinking is um, a remix of traditional design thinking. Um, so in those steps you have, you build on an idea, you uh, prototype the idea, et cetera. Um, well, liberatory design thinking takes that process and kind of turns it on its head. Um, and so it's a series of mindsets and tools that really help young people problem solve. And so in the first process within the liberatory design thinking, thinking framework, is noticing, right? So the idea is that you have to notice um, your identity and notice your biases that show up. Because what often happens when we use these design thinking protocols, um, sometimes when we don't check our biases, we end up creating solutions um, that actually are, are inherently biased. And so yeah. the liberatory design process tries to turn that on its head and it builds in intentional equity pauses for young people um, and designers to really uh, ask themselves, like, are there biases showing up in the work? So the liberatory design thinking is a framework. And so we took that framework and then applied it to a core class that all of our students take, which is our social justice makerspace. And so our students study real world issues in that social justice makerspace. And then they use liberatory design thinking to create um, tentative solutions um, and use technology like 3D printers, podcast stations, photography stations, in order to um, create prototypes of uh, solutions to the issues that they've been studying. I was going to ask you about the curriculum. So you mentioned the social justice makerspace. How does that kind of naturally feed into the other traditional subjects you might have in a school, whether it's social studies, science, are there lessons within all of those that can apply to the larger social justice theme? And, and how, how is that kind of shaped just in a, in a regular school day? Definitely. So social justice for us shows up um, in our text topics and our tasks. And so the literacy curriculum that we use, for example, is from expeditionary learning. Um, and many of their texts are, are rooted in real world learning. And so I'll give you a concrete example. So fifth yeah. graders, when they come to the school, the first text that they read at our school is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so one of these notions that they may study is like, you know, is land an actual human right? And so they might take that question 
And then they would go into the social justice maker space and begin to think about that question in the context of DC specifically. And yeah. so they might begin to ask the question, well, is land a human right? Then what does that mean for gentrification and for DC natives um, in the city? And so the text that they might read accompanying that would be a, a, a book called The Beat, which is a book on go-go music. Um, yeah. And then when they bring that together, um, after they go through the liberatory design thinking process, they may, their, their, their project might be to create a 3D map that actually um, repurposes parts of the city to make sure that gentrification um, slows down or doesn't happen at all. Or their teacher might ask them to create a statue that memorializes go-go music in DC yeah. um, as a way to kind of bring the connection between their literacy curriculum, this idea of human rights, and then this idea of like project creation and makers all and makers craft all together. I know you mentioned that you've worked with middle school age kids for a long time. What is it about where they are in the, in the development process that makes that age group a good fit for the social justice school? Yeah, so everyone says that like middle school's uh, brains are crazy, which which they are. But there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff that's happening um, in there as well. And so at the in, in the adolescent brain, we used to think of the adolescent brain was like solely obsessed with fairness, um, and that actually is true. Um, but at the social justice school, we believe that if young people are obsessed with fairness, um, in the beginning, it does mostly start off with like this individualized sense of fairness. Um, and the and people, teachers are not being fair to me, but our idea is that if we can create community and connections, then we can take that obsession with fairness and turn it towards the world and make it be a fairness that is rooted in empathy and love. And so the, we see the middle school adolescent brain as really primed for for that development, um, and that's why we chose middle school. In, in the pilot programs, you 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 started. How difficult is empathy to teach to? I think, you know, we often talk about 12, 13, 14 year old kids aren't necessarily, that, that empathy is, is learned over time. How do you grasp at that concept? How do you start to chip away at that for, for that age group? So for us, there were two things. One, the adults needed to model uh, being vulnerable um, yeah. and breaking down some of those barriers. And so all of the exercises that we did around race and gender um, and class um, and ethnicity, our teachers actually modeled them first. And so to hear your teacher unpack the intersectional self um, in front of a group of strangers at that point, because we hadn't known each other, is really yeah. powerful. And it creates this sense of like really deep connection. The second piece is that we really took time in order to build strong relationships. Um, because I think for us, folks can make connections when, um, or become empathetic when they have connections with people. Um, and having young people tell their story. So storytelling is a really big part of our uh, model as well, because in order for young folks to see the pain um, and hope that exists within other individuals, they have to understand their stories first. And, and as we've watched over the last few months, you know, how have these events of you know, police killing unarmed black men and the, and the protests around that underscored the importance of this type of education and, and the importance of having something like that right now? Definitely. Um, you know, I remain hopeful and optimistic because the social justice school is uh, a space where young people will contribute to the civic engagement that is happening um, within the country. I think for a long time, the way in which we thought about civic engagement in school is like, 
let me teach you the three branches of government and then that's it, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> right. Literally the civics class, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And so now social justice school is remixing that and saying, you know, civic engagement at the heart of it is civic action. Um, and so we want young people to have an opportunity to participate in a um, civic democracy. Um, and we see the social justice school as an opportunity for them to do that. And we also see social justice school as a way to support students' development in seeing past the more public images of racism that occur every day. There's a lot of violence that happens amongst um, Black, Indigenous, people of color um, that's often subtle. And so like, we have to ha have a, a real deep sense of empathy and a critical eye towards the world in order to see those systems of oppression at work. And we see social justice school as preparing young people to see those systems as systems that were designed, but to see them as systems that can be redesigned because they were designed. I know you mentioned, you know, how they're included, but how are everyday examples of what we see in the world baked into the curriculum, into discussions, into um, what students are working with on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, so in our model, there's a model called CREW. Um, and so we, you know, we, we're, we have this phrase, we are crew, not passengers. Um, and the idea is that every young person is going to be known, loved, and valued, and they exist within a crew. So a crew is a tight-knit family at our school with about 10 to 12 students, um, and the okay. crew leader stays with their uh, teacher from uh, fifth grade to eighth grade, so that really becomes their family. And so that's really the space where we implement um, our social justice cu uh, curriculum and standards, um, and they meet with them uh, every single day as well. Um, and then in our social justice maker space and in our um, literacy class as well as how those uh, real world uh, current examples come up in our school each day. For 10, 11 year old kids, what do you see as the most important concepts in teaching them about social justice? How do you build on that? And then by the time they leave for high school, what will they be able to organize, analyze, and then do to further that education and, and what they've learned at the social justice school? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think one important idea, as I mentioned earlier, is this, this concept, concept of intersectionality, um, because I think, you know, we can't think critically about the world until we can think critically about ourselves. And so we need young people to understand how they show up in the world, and how the world um, engages with them as well. Um, so I would say that's concept number one. I think concept number two is this notion for us you know, we don't see social justice as like a defined end. And I think oftentimes um, when schools talk about social justice or when social justice talked about period, we think about in terms of like, you know, redistribution of wealth or a reform of the criminal system. And all, th all those things are true, but we really see social justice um, at our school as um, a design response to systems of inequality. And so if we can teach young people how to see themselves as designers, um, then that for us is, is an act of social justice. So that would be a designer's mindset would be the second concept as well. And then I think the third idea um, is for young people to understand um, the, the history of racist ideas to quote Dr. Kendi, like you gotta understand yeah. the systems in order to be able to redesign against it. And when our young people leave us, we want them you know, to be prepared to think critically about all types of texts, to engage in mathematical reasoning and problem solving, and to have a deep sense of empathy 
um, in connection with the world and to already have had experiences doing the work of social justice. And for us, it doesn't necessarily mean that every one of our students will be organizers because some of our students might go off and become bankers and writers, yeah. et cetera. But that as long as they were having this ethic of social justice and this deep connection with the world, that's the kind of young people that we want to see um, as they leave our school. As you, and I know you come from, you know, being a principal in the, in the public charter school system, but what, what were the first steps in, in getting a school off the ground and just getting going and, and breathing life into this idea? Yeah, the first step for us, um, again, we really see ourselves as a community designers. And so the first thing that we did was talk to young people. And we did a bunch of student shadow days where we just like shadowed students and just really tried to understand like what is happening in the average day of a middle school person and talked to families and really wanted to understand uh, what they were looking for in a school. Um, and so what we found is that families and students wanted a place where one, they had an opportunity to engage in real world uh, learning. Two, they had an opportunity to create deep connections with one another. Three, they wanted to have the opportunity to uh, research and develop ideas together as well. And then four, they wanted to be in community with one another. And so that those principles that we learned became the, the, the bedrock and the foundation of the that led to the questions that eventually led to our pilot that then led to the charter application and eventually is leading up into us opening doors in August. And what were some of the biggest challenges? I mean, in just in having to check all of those boxes, get all of those things organized, what, what would you say were some of the biggest challenges in making that happen? Yeah, so I um, often like to use this analogy that, you know, within the world, there are playbooks that exist for how to do X, right? So there's a playbook for how to drive. There's a playbook for how to fix a washing machine. Yeah. There's a playbook on how to start a school, but I think oftentimes people of color don't have access to some of the plays within that playbook, especially around navigating some of the political landscape and constructs, because as a leader of color, you know, we play the role of politician, prophet, and school leader, and sometimes, yeah. and so it is a very difficult space um, to navigate. So that's one part of the challenge, and is just access and equity within it. And then I think the second part, um, land is really scarce in DC, and so acquiring a facility is a very daunting task. So ensuring that, you know, we were able to get a facility um, early was really significant. And there's a lot of choice in DC, right? And so, you know, we have to essentially make a very compelling case to families of why they should take yeah. it with us, right? Um, and thankfully, we've been fortunate to have families who really believe in our mission um, and our model and are excited to, to launch and, and grow our school with us together. And I know you had had the experience of testing out the model um, in, the, in the pilot programs, but what, was there a moment in the last couple of years where you realized, okay, this is, this is definitely going to happen and people are excited about this and we have that momentum to kind of get us going forward? Yeah, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes in the pilot. That's why I, you know, I love to pilot and, and test. Yeah. Uh, I really do believe that. And so, you know, first vision of social justice school, it was like extremely different and innovative. So there was going to be like no core classes. Everything was going to be taught in projects. And I remember um, we, I had a young person who was in high school who came to me and said like, Mr. Long, the social justice work is cool, but like, I can't read. So like, I can grasp some of it, but not all of it. And so yeah. I had to remind myself that 
you know, there are parts of teaching like direct instruction that is still needed. Um, and so we changed our model and made sure that we had um, that opportunity for students to get that direct instruction in addition to some of the innovative practices that we were um, developing and iterating on. And I think the moment which we knew we were gonna push forward was actually like when my daughter was born, right? Like I, I yeah. literally quit, quit my job um, at the time before she was born and didn't have something um, lined up to be able to provide for my family. And when she was born, it was like, yes, this has to happen because my daughter absolutely needs a school that's right. going to cultivate the young person that she will become. You know, and I, I know you're starting off with fifth and sixth graders. Does that, not having all four grades coming at once, does that allow you to kind of test what works with that first cohort of students and then perfect that, you know, as, as they develop in the years. Definitely. I think we, uh, we would be insane if we tried to launch with fifth through eighth grade all at once. It would be, <laughs> it would be crazy. It would be a lot going on. Uh, so yeah, the fifth and sixth grade idea um, is because we wanted to grow over time and the founding family culture is really special. And so we wanted it to be really small so that our families could really have a collective input and grow out the school model that we were building together. And obviously it's a big undertaking to start a school from scratch. Um, what do you, what would you say throughout this process of, you know, idea phase to implementation you've learned about yourself either as a leader, as an educator, any of that? Great question. I think the first thing that I learned about myself as an educator is, you know, we often think that um, our job as educators is to, deposit information into young people. But in our actuality, um, our young people have so much of life and knowledge to teach us. And so to be a really good educator, first and foremost, just means to listen. Um, yeah. And I, I really, really, really believe that. And so that idea manifested in um, the design of our school mission and it took a long time for us to figure out the right words and so many schools have like you know x school will prepare young people to do y and so we chose the word catalyze um, in our mission because we believe that our young people already had the skills in which they needed to be scholar activists we just need to kind of we just need to kind of like um, mix it up and bring it forth with them. And so that led us to our mission, which is to catalyze an integrated community of scholar activists who are designers of a more just world. Um, so that's the first piece. I think the second piece I learned about myself is, you know, this is a, a daunting task and our leadership team um, faced some pretty huge challenges in the writing of the charter application. Um, so there was like, you know, I lost my mom within that time period as well. So and sorry. So, thank you. Um, and so it really taught me more um, importance about the value of community um, and about showing up and leaning in with your, your folks who are with you in this work and just being your authentic self. And, I, you know, I guess the question that everyone, not in just education, but everywhere is dealing with, obviously, coronavirus hasn't left the picture. Um, it's still a part of, you know, what we're dealing with. But how do you you know, plan and, and implement a school knowing that part or all of an education system could be online for the foreseeable future? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's like, it's, I think it's absolutely absurd that we're starting a school uh, during a pandemic and an uprising. Um, <laughs> this is like the definition of absurdity, I guess. But 
Um, but it's great though. Um, we have this really unique opportunity to uh, rethink and redesign education. And so while um, it will be challenging, we are excited about the opportunity for students not to have to move lock and step with one another um, and to be able to move at their own pace and for teachers to be able to record their lessons and to create playlists for young people. And so we're excited um, that all of our teachers will be recording their lessons so we can build this catalog of great instruction for our teachers um, and our families. We also want to take away some of the burdens from our families because we know like our families are great um, and then their child's first teacher, but we're also their teacher as well. We, we want them to focus on, you know, loving their child and let us doing the hard, heavy work around teaching. And so our goal um, is to first uh, make sure that we can connect with young people since people are just experiencing a ton of loss and grief. Um, and then we'll really want to make sure that our young people are set up to navigate the online platforms that we'll use for our uh, virtual um, and distance learning. And then we'll start to introduce the content and make sure that young people are, you know, fully engaged in the work. Is there anything else you wanted to add about, you know, the, the process of, of getting the school off the ground, your background, anything like that? Yeah, so I studied uh, philosophy at American University. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is like, you, you, you never really understand the power of ideas and how you internalize them. And so, you know, I remember in, at AU, uh, in, in uh, Dr. Ellen Feeder's class um, on race and philosophy and learning about these notions um, and ideas uh, from Du Bois to Anna Julia Cooper um, and then studying philosophy of education as well um, from a pragmatic perspective, particularly from like John Dewey. And so like social justice school um, is an evolution of like many of the ideas that I read yeah. as an undergrad and as a grad student at American University. So I think, you know, people always say like, what do philosophers do with a, with a philosophy degree? <laughs> well, we build schools. That's, that's one thing. That yeah, we there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for, I know your schedule is insanely packed, so I, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to join us and, and to walk us through your process and best of luck to, to you and your teachers and your students as, as you get started this fall. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much again. Really humbled to yeah. be here. Thank you. That was the summer 2020 episode of the 30 Minutes On podcast from American University Magazine. Thank you so much to our guest, Myron Long, for virtually joining us and telling us more about his work in founding the Social Justice School. You can find our first episode with School of Communication professor Seth Shaheen and subscribe to the podcast in the Apple Podcasts app or in the Google Play Store. And a full transcript of the show is available on our website at american.edu magazine. Keep an eye out for a PAC Summer 2020 magazine, which hits mailboxes soon. And let us know what you think by emailing magazine at american.edu or chatting with us on Twitter or Instagram at au underscore American Mag. Thanks for listening and stay safe. We'll see you next time.